Good morning. You guys are a little rowdy this morning, huh? You, you, you got pretty recharged through that uh, time of song, didn't you? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 2. Hey, what are the two topics that you always want to avoid if you don't want to pick a fight with somebody? You got it. Did you say religion and politics? Guess what we're going to talk about today? Religion and politics. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Huh? Actually, we're going to talk about Christianity and we're going to talk about our responsibility in government. That's one kind of part of it. And it's uh, where we're headed this morning. This is our CrossFit teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World, Contagious Christianity, Part 2 is the title of this weekend's message. I asked the question last weekend, part one, Contagious Christianity, is your love for God contagious? Is your love for God contagious? The word contagious means spreading to and affecting others. His love is a love this world has never known. And when you encounter his love, you will never ever be the same. And uh, you will become contagious with that love. So is your love for God contagious? Peter is teaching us how to live the Christian life, live out the gospel in a non-Christian world. We saw that uh, last week as we really dove into verses 11 and 12, chapter uh, 2 of 1 Peter. And, and he's teaching us how to live the Christian life with a less than ideal government. That's verses 13 through 17. We'll be reading just a moment. And also in a less than ideal employer or with a less than ideal employer, verses 18 through 21. And then he kind of wraps it up, this section, just saying, hey, we need to follow Jesus' example of overcoming evil with good. Those are verses 21 through 25. Now, here's my logic kind of already laid it out there for you. I believe that the Christian life is the most exhilarating, the most exciting, the most enthusiastic life that you will ever live, ever experience. It's interesting, the word enthusiasm, if you were to dive into the, the root meaning of that word, in theos, in theos, it means when in God is where we will experience the greatest enthusiasm People who know God can't help but be contagious about God. If you are walking in vital union and communion with the creator of the heavens and the earth, you can't help but be contagious about that. And, and that's my logic. That's where we're headed. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and we're going to dive into our text. Let's pray. Father God, we are delighted to be here today. Wow, what a, what a recharging time we've had already just uh, through our time of song and, and worship, expressing our heart to you, knowing your love for us. Regardless of what we're going through, you are, you, you know, you care, you rule. God, we love you. You sent your son Jesus to this earth to be our chosen and precious cornerstone and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous life. So we pray that through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, may we become more contagious at declaring your excellencies and may our lives be an irresistible invitation to the people around us of the infinite value of knowing you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Uh, let's be, uh, let, let me give you, uh, let's begin reading. Let's read first. <laughs> I'm a little confused here this morning, but hang in there with me. Let's read first, and then we'll work through these notes, uh, starting at verse 11 of our text, he says, beloved, now remember the context here is he's talked about Christ being our cornerstone and that we are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people who belong to God to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now stop there just for a minute because this is, he's going to head into our looking at our conduct. So I love about the Christian life. The, the Christian life is not a morally restrained will, but a supernaturally transformed heart. It's not an outside in, it's not behavioral modification, it's heart transformation. If you don't like how you're behaving, you got to get back down deep into the heart. And that's what he starts off with right here in verse 11. He's dealing with heart issues. And then verse 12, he moves to the, to the conduct. So character produces conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, this is where we get into the idea of uh, contagious Christianity. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And actually, uh, Gentiles, he, he means unbelievers. And in fact, more specifically to the context of this culture, this world that he's speaking to is that they live in a hostile world. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, when, when they come to faith, they will look back and say, hey, your life was contagious and made an impact on my life. I'm a believer today because of how you lived it out. Now he moves into verse 13, uh, how we are to conduct ourselves with a government that is less than ideal. He says, be subject, or the word is submission, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, this is Emperor Nero of the times, who was dipping Christians in pitch and lighting them on fire to light his courtyards, just, to, just so you understand what he's saying here. And he's saying, hey, be subject, be in submission uh, to this emperor, to this ruler. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? And, and there's balance to that, obviously, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. The emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So he's kind of really establishing the purpose of government. And there's a number of purposes for government. One would be uh, obviously to, to bring order. Another would to establish justice within a, a society. Also indirectly to, to uh, promote virtue, goodness, and also within that context, you can bring about prosperity or hinder prosperity. Government has that kind of influence. And so he's kind of establishing that, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So you're going to be criticized as a believer. And he says the best way to put them, to zip their lip, to silence them is by your good behavior. What's the greatest evidence that the gospel can transform people's lives? A transformed life. And he's saying, live a transformed life. Live your life in such a way that you put on display, regardless of what they say, you put on display the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And you begin to show them they're not going to get the best of you because you have something that transcends the criticism of what they're saying to you. And that's, that's important. He says, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's, that's pretty profound here. Uh, there's two extremes that we fall prey to as it relates to Christianity, when people first encounter Christianity, and, and, and people do this in, in religion, but we think that Christianity is that somehow I've got to earn my right relationship with God. It's called legalism. So if I do all the right stuff, then God will bless me. And it's quite the contrary. Um, it's actually, we don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his amazing blessing, therefore we obey him. Uh, so that's one extreme. It's that legalism extreme. But then there's that license. Once we understand it's by grace, sometimes people think, well, I can live however I want to live. Well, that's simply not true. Why would you do those things that your Savior bled and died for to set you free of? And he's saying, that doesn't make any sense, so don't, don't use your freedom here. By the way, you're never more free than when you're fully devoted to Jesus Christ. There's a freedom in him that's just, um, it's, it's totally amazing. And he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I mean, you're going to want to honor God with that freedom. You're going to want to put him on display. And you don't do that because you have to. You do it because you want to, because you're captivated by his love for you. And, uh, and because you're experiencing and living in the reality of, of of his presence in your life. He says, and now he kind of summarizes it here in verse 17. Honor everyone. If there's anything that should characterize us is that we just, we honor everyone. And we love the brotherhood, we fear God, and we honor the emperor. 
Now he moves into, in verse 18, uh, how do you live the Christian life with an employer who's less than ideal? He says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? This is what he's saying. Okay, you were late to work every day this last month and you got fired. You're not suffering for righteousness sake. That's what he's saying. He said, you're just irresponsible. And don't take it as like you're being persecuted. No, you're irresponsible. And so he makes that pretty clear. But he says, but... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, when you're taking a beating, when you're trying to follow Christ and put him on display and honor him and respond to the circumstances appropriately, and you still have, you know, injustice taking place in your life, he says that can honor God if you respond to it appropriately. There's an appropriate response to that. Verse 21, for this for to this you have been called. So he's, he's saying, hey man, this is your calling as a believer because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And why would he be an example? Is because he empowers us with his presence. That's the next part of this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that word reviled means that when they were hateful towards him, He did not revile in return. He was not hateful back. Isn't that crazy? My my tendency is to be hateful back. Someone's hateful towards me. Oh, yeah. I'll show you. He's going, that's not our Savior. And if you're going to follow his example, you're not going to do that. And he will empower you to do that. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was he saying there? He said, yeah, he's being unjustly treated, and yet I know that my father is going to balance the book, settle the score, and make things right. My life is in his hands. So pretty profound. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so let's talk about contagious Christianity. Contagious Christians, let me tell you a little bit about what we talked about last week. We just looked at the first two last weekend. Contagious Christians realize their identity. Number two, resist their sinful impulses. We found that in verse 11. Let me just say this, that if you don't have the Bible app, the DB app on your phone, get it, because then you can stay up with us. I know we had probably about 100 folks that were in San Diego last weekend with one of our epic ministry uh, things that we did, and so uh, you're going to want to listen to that message because it, it goes hand in hand with this weekend's message, and if you don't have a smartphone, you've got a dumb phone, then you can't download it. And so... Uh, Go to our website, you know, and you can just listen to it. You can watch it or listen to the messages there, and I would encourage you to do that. But let me just kind of bring you up to speed here because this is really important. If you're going to be a contagious Christian, you've got to realize their identity. He uses the word in verse 11, beloved. You're his beloved, and he means it in a couple different ways. The, the, the root word is, is agape. It's unconditional love. God is the source of that love. He loves us unconditionally, and he says, beloved, and he uses this, which is interesting. I think it was seven or eight times through his two letters, um, Peter uses this word, and so he's describing how the Father feels, how he thinks and feels, and, and what he's wanting to do in our lives, and that's part of our identity. What more, what more value do you need than to have the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth to adore you and to give his life for you. See, that's an identity that can face anything. That's why when he says beloved, beloved, do you know any, do you have any idea how much he loves you? See, that's, that's a wonderful, and then he says, talks about being sojourners and exiles. In other words, this isn't your home. So therefore, you're not going to be enslaved by a lot of the stuff in this world. You can't wait to get home. We talked about that. And then, and the way that we do that is we have to resist our sinful impulses. And he says, abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What he means by that is don't give your heart's deepest affections to anything other than God. 
anything or anyone other than God. There's a war going on to grab a hold of your heart's deepest affections and take them away from God. Don't do that. You set yourself up for all kinds of hurt and heartache in life. You were created for God and Him alone, for Him to ravish your heart, for Him to grab a hold of you, and for you to know Him. Um, one of the reasons why I want you to, to go back and listen, if you weren't here last weekend, to that message is that I used uh, an illustration at the very end of the message. It's, it's my John 10.10 illustration of an impact uh, that I experienced. It was an amazing uh, thing that happened to me when I was on the fire department that really drives this church. And if you ever, ever wondered why John 10.10 is the theme verse here at Desert Breeze, I talk about that because of an experience that I had on the fire department and the passion of what drives me and drives this church. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And I talked about the story of a young man who had been in a relationship on again, off again, on again, off again. Finally, the, the gal said, I'm out of here, and he killed himself. He committed suicide. Now, why would he do that? Now, you need to understand, and what he's talking about here when he talks about resist these sinful passions, the word passions is epithumia. Epithumia, it's an over-desire. And when you lose a good thing, a relationship is a good thing, marriage is a good thing, a loved one is, a, is a, certainly a good thing, a job, career, any of those things are good things, you're going to be sorrowful. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, epithumia, when you lose it, you're not just going to be sorrowful, you're going to be in despair. And that's why he says here, he says, resist those sinful impulses that are waging war. They're trying to dominate your life. Don't make something in creation what only God can be to you, the love of your life. That's what he's saying. So you can see why that's a part of this idea of contagious Christianity and I won't say any more. You need to go and listen online or something. If you, if you weren't here last week, those that knew, uh, were here know what I'm talking about and that takes us to the next um, by the way, nothing can rob you of the joy that Christ gives to you except for idolatry. Nothing can rob you of that joy. There's an amazing, there's an amazing joy in God that nothing can rob you of that except for idolatry. And idolatry is just you're, you're replacing uh, God with something else and you're making, uh, it's too important to you. Okay, next point, rest in their integrity. So contagious Christians realize their identity, resist their sinful impulses and rest in their integrity. And so you see this in verses 12, 15, 19 through 20. He keeps talking about good behavior, good, good works. If I keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And so you see this idea of good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. It's talking about integrity and uh, tells us in Matthew 5, uh, Chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the definition is for integrity. What is integrity? Because we need to rest in our integrity real quick. Okay, do you guys come up with some good answers? Let me give you my answer here. Uh, as you were discussing that, I mean, obviously, you probably said something like what I just said. It's just good deeds. It's good deeds and consistent good deeds, but let me give you the definition here that I've got. Integrity means you practice what you preach. You, you, uh, you behave in a manner that's consistent with how you believe. Now, that's a problem for all of us. We all struggle with that to a certain degree because there always seems to be somewhat of a disparity between what I say I believe and how I behave. Because if we really believe that God is for us and not against us, obviously when we encounter difficulties in life, we're not going to freak out, but we tend to freak out. I mean, we tend to get stressed out. We tend to let a lot of things in this world really bother us, and so there it creates that disparity. So integrity would really be narrowing that disparity, that gap between what, how, how we believe and how we behave and consistent with that, and that would be the good deeds. It also means that your public and private lives are consistent. You'll notice I put in there rest, rest in their integrity. And what that means is that you just, you outlive, you outlove, and you outrejoice your critics. 
Like I said, they can't get the best of you. I've had tons of critics. When we started Desert Breeze, I had people say, what the heck are you thinking? You want to start a church? You want to plant a church? That's the stupidest thing in the world. We've had a lot of people that have come and gone uh, Desert Breeze. And I always said to my wife, I said, no, this is what God's put on my heart. I believe that we're supposed to do this. I'm going to do this until, until we die, until we go to be with the Lord. And I'm going to outlive, outlast, and outrejoice my critics. And I'm not going to let it get the best of me. I'm going to continue to keep my eyes on him. I'm going to be so filled up with his goodness and lost in his love that it's like water on a duck's back. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the attitude that you have. It's like when people criticize you, it doesn't carry the weight because you already know that you're his beloved. And you're living in the reality of that. He's got all the bases covered. You can rest in that. He loves you. That's the gospel. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And, uh, and now this is not, here's your next point, this is not perfection but, but courage to admit your blunders and make things right and continue to make progress. Um, Philippians 1.6, it's a great verse, great memory verse, but it just says that the work that Christ began in us, he will carry it on to completion. What does that mean? It means that you don't have it together and you still have a long ways to go, but yet he's still working in your life. And if you ever come off like you have it all together, well, he, why would he need to keep working on you? Why would you want to claim a promise like that? He's like, I'm working on you. He says, I'm going to continue that work till I bring you home. I'm going to keep working on you. So that just means you need, you're a work in progress, okay? And you got to be cool with that. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that's talking about this, this disparity, this gap between our beliefs and our behavior. And of course, 1 John 1, 8, 9. 1, 8 has always been, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, 1 John has been a favorite verse of mine because anytime I come across Christians who think that they have it all together, I'm always reminded of that verse because it says, if you think that you do not sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. So I just know, oh, these guys... They're out of touch with reality because we all sin and we all struggle. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's no doubt about it. Bad behavior and, uh, and bad character can discredit good arguments. There's no doubt about it. And um, it's hard to argue for responsible drinking if you're a practicing alcoholic, okay? It's, uh, you don't have a strong case for honesty if you're a chronic liar, and, and I understand because as we proclaim that the gospel, gospel can transform your life and if, and if we're not very transformed, it tends to discredit the gospel. I understand all of that, but, but, but we've always got to go back to this. You don't, um, we, are not, we are not saved by giving God our performance record. We're saved by him giving us his we don't come up with a performance record. We're not just good people and then, okay, here, God, are you going to accept me? I, I did a lot of good things. That's not, how, that's not Christianity. Christianity is that he gives us his son's performance record. See, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. And, though he, and he gives us that record, and we stand before God completely righteous. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion, that, that my righteousness, my right standing with God is imputed. It's given to me. And so when the Father looks at me, he looks at me as he, as he would look at the Son, the Lord Jesus, perfect in his sight. You see, this is what's amazing about Christianity is that you get the verdict before the performance. Every other belief system is that you get the performance and then you get the verdict. Okay, you've, you've met the standards. Come on in. You're part of the team. But not Christianity. You get the verdict first. You are my beloved child. I gave my life for you. He sweeps us off of our feet with his love, and then our performance comes out of that. You guys tracking with me? That's pretty important, by the way. If your performance isn't where it needs to be, it's only because you're not understanding and living in the reality of the verdict that has been given to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to always keep coming back to that. Calling yourself a Christian is not an admission that you have it all together, but it's an admission that you don't. You don't have it all together, neither do I, and that's why we're so desperate for Jesus. And the more I realize that, the more I run to him. And uh, some of us, some of us, just, you know, as, as I look around here, some of us have further to go than others. 
And, and let me just be very honest with you as it relates to this, that if you came from a, a, a great home life where your mom and dad loved you and at a very young age led you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, you, you have an advantage over those that come from a broken home life. If you came out of brokenness, it, it's going to take some time. But listen, no sin that you have committed and no sin that has been committed against you is beyond God's redeeming, restoring grace. But it takes time. And so we've got to cut each other a lot of slack. We don't know, you know where someone comes from, what's going on. And so we've got to be okay with that. We've got to offer grace to them and, and be a place that's safe to be able to admit our shortcomings and, and know that we're all at different places in this process of, of spiritual growth and to create the best safe place we can. So when I say rest in your integrity, it's like, hey, it's not perfection, but courage to admit your blunders and make things right, continue to make progress. That's what it is. Now, here's the interesting thing, the irony of maps. This is what I love about Desbury's because I think it's a pretty authentic place. Sometimes it's a little bit too authentic and people don't want to hang out with us. I understand that. They're not ready to to confess their sins and to work through those issues and admit the fact that we, none of us have it together. But the irony of masks is that although we wear them to make other people think well of us, they are drawn to us only when we take them off. There's something about that authenticity, and that's what, he's, that's what he, I think he's, we're learning here, this live good lives, be honest about who you are and where you are and what's going on. This is not perfection, but courage to admit your blunders and make things right and continue to make progress. Here's the next thing. Expect opposition, develop thick skin, and live to make much of him. Verse 12, when they speak against you, it's not if they speak against you, but when they speak against you, verse 16, living as people who are free, servants of God, that, that will give you thick skin, when you understand the freedom that you have in Christ, you're serving God, you're living for an audience of one, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So here's what's amazing about the Christian life is that he comes and he makes much of us. I adore you, I gave my life for you so that he can set us free from ourselves, from our self-absorption so that we can then live our lives to make much of him. That makes sense? That makes sense. So, so, before Christ, we're pretty self-absorbed, and it's pretty much promoted in the American way. Hey, it's all about you. You deserve it. You're the best. And the Bible says, wait a minute, wait a minute. God loves you and adores you, and he wants to set you free from that self-absorption because there's not a more miserable life. And so he sets us free from our self-absorption, and it's a blessed self-forgetfulness to where we live captivated by his glory and his beauty. And so here's the question. When you make decisions, are you making those decisions and are you living your life in such a way that you are wanting to make much of you or is it about making much of God? That would be the, those, that would be the question and that's what he's wanting to teach us here. It's about making much of God. Are you living your life in such a way how you handle money, your sexuality, relationships, success or failure, health, sickness, a less than ideal government, employer, less than ideal marriage or church or, or whatever you're up against, are you living your life in such a way that people infer that Jesus is more valuable than anything in your life? Here's the next point on your notes. This will be seen with this attitude. Attitude can disarm or detonate a situation. This is good just conflict resolution skill right here. Attitude can disarm or detonate the situation. So we're talking about resting in our integrity, we're getting criticism, we're living in an antagonistic, hostile world to our Christian faith. And he says, attitude, we're learning that attitude can disarm or detonate the situation. So here's a couple questions for you. Do you generally have a praising or irritable attitude when speaking the truth? So when you feel like, hey, I need to communicate something to this person, how do you do that? Here's the next question. Do you generally have a repentant or defensive attitude when receiving truth? When someone wants to criticize you, how do you respond to that? Are you great at affirming people and great at receiving a lack of affirmation? So it goes back to the text here, verses 21 through 23. Jesus was reviled. They were hateful towards him, and yet he was not hateful back. And this is about overcoming evil with good. It's not that you shouldn't speak up. There's not that, I mean... There's times certainly we should speak up. 
And, uh, but it's how and when we speak up. Both Jesus, Jesus spoke up in John 18, 23, and he spoke up a lot to the religious people and to the religious folks of his day. Paul spoke up in Acts 22, 25, you know, saying, hey, I want justice. This is unjust. This is not right. And so there's appropriate times to speak up, and it's, it's how we speak, speak up and when we speak up. But here's what we need more than anything is that we need to learn to speak the truth with such a melt-in-your-mouth sweetness and brokenness that people will say, I don't agree with what they have to say, but I cannot deny their love for me and for others. And I think that's what he's teaching us through this text. What should characterize us as, as believers more than anything? If people were to say and mention believers and Christians in our culture, in American culture, and I know that they don't, I know that non-Christians don't feel this way, but this is what the Bible says that they should feel, is that they should know us by our what? By our what? By our love. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, John 13, 35. And then Matthew 5, 44 through 45 um, he talks about, he says, uh, he says, one of the things that will characterize you as my child, and I'm your daddy, I'm your father, is that you love your enemies. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm setting you up here, because we're going to talk about politics in just a minute. And so I'm setting you up, because you need, you need all of this in dealing with what's going on in the, in the landscape of American politics and in life in general. And to be quite frank with you, the, the church has been really hateful. And I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily this church, I'm talking about the church at large, the religious right and a lot of that. They're, they're not well thought of in our society today. And so I'm, I'm kind of setting you up. And, uh, and you, you gotta understand this, and here's a little bit of the philosophy of Desert Breeze. You need to know this, that when people come in come into this church, we understand that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. That happens in the home. It also happens in the church. And so if, you're, if we're here shoving rules down people's throats, you need to and you shouldn't and why would you do that? We don't do that here. Because we want them to encounter Jesus. We don't think that they'll really understand the rules that we live by unless they know the rule maker, the one who, who loves us and adores us and gave his life for us. You understand what I'm saying? So don't get the cart before the horse. We want them to encounter Jesus, so we're going to cultivate relationship. And so people are going to come into this place living all kinds of different ways, and we want to love them and embrace them and cultivate relationship with them and for them to see Jesus so then, then we can say, hey, you know, follow us as we follow Jesus. And they're going to understand what that means as their hearts as ours have, been ravished by his beauty and his glory. And, um, and so too often, you know, we come, we, we, we dog people with truth, and what they need more than anything is they need love, and then in that context, then we can speak truth. That's true about any relationship. It's true about any relationship. Um, we serve a God who died for his enemies. That alone is what captivated my heart. And here's the deeper issue. I have people say this to me. Well, you know, I can accept some of that stuff of Christianity, but some of the things that Jesus said, I'm not buying it. You know what the deeper issue is? Here's the deeper issue. Did he rise from the dead? Did he die on the cross? Did he rise from the dead? Is he who he said he is? If he, if he didn't, forget it. Let's close the church down. Let's throw this in the trash, the Bible, and just live however we want to live. No reason to follow him. But if he rose from the dead, if he died for us on the cross and he rose from the dead, oh my goodness, it would be folly not to follow him. It would be folly not to bow down and worship him and give our lives completely to him. See, the, the, that's the deeper issue. The deeper issue, did he die for you? Did he give his life for you? And then it only makes sense, why would you trample on his love and wisdom as through his directives and his word? You, you're not gonna do that. You're not gonna do that. And so oftentimes I'll go back to, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe? Then, then why wouldn't you follow him? Oh my goodness, let's follow him together. 
See, that's the deeper argument. And that's why it's important that we, we do that. I love what John Piper says. He says, have we not more often been brought to tears of repentance by undeserved kindness than by a severe rebuke? Okay, let's go to the number four. I'm gonna move a little bit quicker. Okay, maybe not. But, uh, but look at this, so refuse to be insubordinate. We're, not, we're gonna talk a little bit about government and then our employer and, and let's, let's walk through this. Uh, so refuse, so, so we're talking contagious Christianity, realize their identity. Uh, contagious Christians realize their identity, resist their sinful impulses, rest in their integrity, and then they refuse to be insubordinate. That just has to be rebellious. It's, it's your attitude. You get rid of your hateful attitude. Um, hey, turn to the person next to you just to see if you can answer this. I asked my wife this last week, and she kind of stumbled over a little bit, and then I think she was able to come up with it. But uh, biblical God-ordained authority structure. What is the biblical God-ordained authority structure? There are three entities that God has implemented into community for our uh, for our blessing, for our benefit. What are the three authority structures in community that it's established in the Bible? That's a, might be a hard question for you, but then when you hear the answer, you're gonna go, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Go ahead and discuss it with the folks next to you, see if they know, real quick. Okay, what are you guys thinking? Yell them out to me. Parents? Somebody say parents. Yeah, right on. Home. Home is an authority structure. That's, that's really important. Any, anything else? Church. Church, church. Anybody thinking church? Yeah, right on. And, and nowadays, a lot of people are flipping off the church. A lot of people just say, eh, I'll just go to the church down the street. I don't like what I'm hearing here, or I don't like what, how they, you know, they're trying to bring church discipline on me, and I can live however I want to live or do whatever I want to do. And, and so people kind of do that and they don't understand that. It was meant for their security and safety. And I know that there are abusive churches. There's no doubt about that. So you need to be able to make the distinction. But so you got, you got home, church, and then what else do we have? Government. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, those are all God-ordained. Leaders for the church and state are forged where? Leader for the church and state are forged where? In the home in the home, and that's why it's critical that the state establish laws that do not undermine the home. Does that make sense? And uh, civil governments are established by God. You can read more about this and really what our responsibility is in Romans 13, one through seven as you work through the growing notes this next week. And they're meant to bring these benefits to human society. I talked about that, order, justice, virtue, prosperity. 1 Samuel 15, 23 tells us that rebellion is as the sin of, anybody? Rebellion is as the sin of what? Divination or witchcraft, it's demonic. So when you push against the authority of parents or the home or government, even a bad government, there's appropriate times to do that, obviously, or when you push against the authority of the church, the Bible says that's demonic. It has to do with lawlessness. You can't say something is crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. When someone, when someone says, that's wrong, and you go, okay, why do you say that? What's the basis of that? Your straight edge can't be based on popular opinion polls as we're seeing more and more here happening in America today. In Judges 21-25, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're seeing that happen, and there was devastation to the nation of Israel as a result of that. Government cannot save people or fundamentally change human hearts. Personal salvation is a work of God, not government. Inwardly transformed people are necessary for a transformed society. But governments significantly influence people's moral convictions and behavior in the moral fabric of a nation. Let me just read to you. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's from a book, a couple quotes here. The Impact of Government Laws. Uh, this is from the book City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era. It's a great book. I would also, if you want to study further on this, Wayne Gruden has done extensive studies on this and it really establishes some really good insight for Christians in this area of our responsibility in government. And this is what it says here, just as attitudes, mores, and manners shape laws, 
Laws shape attitudes, mores, and manners. Beyond that, laws and government policies can affirm or weaken character-forming institutions like family. Now, that was established in, back in Genesis 1 and 2, the idea of family, so, because as the family goes, so goes society. And so we need to do that which promotes family, the foundation, the fundamental foundation of a society as a family. Those kids that broke into your house and ripped you off, they came from a broken family, a broken home. That's why it's critical to have good, strong families. Talks about uh, this here. He continues on. He says, an example is a, the impact of laws. He says, an example is a social is a social welfare program like Aid to the Families with Dependent Children, AFDC. Not only did this program fail to improve the condition of the poor, which was its explicit purpose, it created greater dependency on government and encouraged out-of-wedlock birth. So the laws that we establish can, can contribute to the family or take away from the family. Uh, another example that they bring here is, or take the issue of divorce in 1970, Governor Ronald Reagan of California signed into law the nation's first no-fault divorce. Within just seven years, all but three states had replaced or had repealed fault grounds for divorce. This amounted to a revolution in social policy. In less than a decade, the entire legal divorce structure was fundamentally changed, and the divorce rate has gone through the roof. And we know that for most children, divorce has a shattering emotional and developmental effect. And, and so look at our culture and where we're headed. And then now there is the same-sex marriage issue that we're facing. And uh, I, don't, I think it won't be too long that pastors will... Uh, will actually be required to do same-sex marriages and uh, it will be based on anti-discrimination. They'll say that that's discriminatory and you need to do that. And that's, that's kind of where we're headed as a culture, just, uh, just so that you know that. And, um, and so all I'm, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that um, government and the laws, and that's why we need, we need to be involved in the process. But let me, let me give you the point here. Next point on your notes. Honorable accountability. Here's the point. Honorable accountability should be our relationship to government. Jesus was asked if we should give taxes to Caesar, and he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And what he was saying is that honor, honor the government, but hold them accountable, but do it in an honorable way, is what he's saying. Now, there are four wrong views of government that I see in our society today. Uh, Wayne Gruden actually talks about five, but let me just uh, narrow them down to five to four. They're not on your notes, but one is to idolize government. The other one is to demonize government. That would be a couple different. We see that happening in our culture today. Another one would be with Christians. As Christians, we tend to do this, and I see this extreme. There are those that would say, do evangelism, not politics. People need changed hearts. That's the problem. And then I hear people say, no, do politics, not evangelism. We need to change our culture. Those are extreme views. Those are wrong ways to respond to government. I believe in what the Bible teaches and what we're learning in this text is that first and foremost, we should do evangelism, proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. There's no doubt about it. We do that a lot here. And part of our evangelism should be politics. It should be involved in the process, voting and bringing in laws that help to establish and reinforce a good, solid family. History shows a pattern of influence on secular government. Let me give you a couple more examples. The Christian beliefs of Martin Luther King impacted the, the outlawing of racial segregation and discrimination. Today, tens of thousands of Christians form the backbone of, pro -life, of the pro-life movement, which continues to work for the prohibition of abortion. And we're, we're part of that process through uh, um, Crisis Pregnancy Center and what they do. It's phenomenal work. If Christians do not speak publicly about moral and ethical issues facing a nation, then who will? But here's my point. It's how we speak. It's what we say. And it's when we speak. We've got to do it with amazing love. The love that has ravished our hearts. See, the great commission is to make disciples. To evangelize means to advocate a cause with the object of making converts, to teach rather than force. 
to preach rather than coerce. Here's the next point on your notes. The Christian army doesn't kill its enemies. It seeks to love and win them over. That's the point that he's getting across here. It is okay to attack a policy, but never a person. Contempt and outright hostility toward people, parties, or government in general doesn't honor God. Let me talk to you about how politics have become an idol. I want to quote John or uh, Tim Keller just a moment. Well, let me just say this. One of those issues is the same-sex issue here recently, and the church has been hateful. And I know the Bible teaches very clearly the foundation of a home is a man and a woman and, and a marriage. I understand that, but how we respond to the culture, we've got to love the culture. We've got to speak the truth in love. And I, I really believe that this whole idea of politics has become... Uh, a form of idolatry. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say. He says, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is, th is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is, is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end. There's no hope. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks about openly leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the, for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead, of, and instead focus on the points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else and a poisonous environment is created. Another sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered to be simply mistaken, but to be evil. After the last presidential election, my 84-year-old mother observed, it used to be that whoever was elected as your president, even if he wasn't the one you voted for, he was still your president. That doesn't seem to be the case any longer. After each election, there is, no, there is now a significant number of people who see the incoming president lacking moral legitimacy. The increasing political polar polarization and bitterness we see in U.S. politics today is a sign that we have made political activism into a form of religion. Pretty profound. It, it comes down to, here's the next point on your notes. It comes down to this. Respect and submit to those in authority for the Lord's sake. This is neither blind nor absolute, but always respectful. Respect the office even if you can't respect the officer. That's important. That's part of what the Bible teaches. And uh, it's fascinating when you study early Christians is that they turned their world upside down, the Roman Empire upside down, not through politics, but through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. And... Um, and so let me give you just a couple things as it relates to employer, if you're in a bad situation. Does submitting mean I have to do whatever I'm told as it relates to my employer? If it's legal and moral, yes. If it's stupid and unfair, yes. If it's illegal and immoral, no. You live by a higher law. What if I'm ordered to do something immoral or illegal? Respect respectfully push back, seek a creative alternative, and accept the consequences of, of saying no. And remember, you're suffering for righteousness' sake. What if I'm, I'm in a, an impossible situation? So far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone, as it says in Romans chapter 12. Always seek to return good for evil. Trust God to even the score. He'll balance the books. Now, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs it's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. And people ought to be able to say to us, I don't agree with them, but I've never seen a group of people that love me more. We serve a Savior who died for his enemies.
We're to follow his example. Yes, we speak the truth, but oh my goodness, it needs to be filled with love. Tons and tons of love. And we need to keep our hearts saturated with his love. Next weekend, we're gonna talk uh, about the gospel. His love is, is a love that the world has never really known. We're gonna talk about, we're gonna finish up this text 21 through 25. Just, it's just, the more I've meditated on this section, it's just, it's just overwhelming to me. I was, uh, I was trying to keep from crying this morning just through the worship because I was just overwhelmed with his love this morning. So I said, I gotta get it together. Come on, Davis, get it together because you're not gonna be able to get up and teach this message. And, uh, and so next weekend, come back because we're gonna talk about this gospel message and the love of God, but we're gonna talk about our vision as a church. Vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. And we're gonna talk about where we're going as a church. We're, we're maxing this place out. I don't know if you noticed that. We're in the summer months. God's doing amazing work right here at Desert Breeze. I'm really excited about what God's up to. And, and so come back next week. We'll talk more about it. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Here's what I'm gonna pray. We're gonna pray really the, the bottom line right there on your notes. What's the bottom line? Let's pray, God. Uh, wow, your love is totally amazing. I, I just don't think, God, the, the world has seen your love yet through us. You're continuing to work in our lives. May we live as people who are free servants of you, God. May we honor everyone because, God, this is what we have been called to because Christ suffered for you, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. God, may we respond to our culture. God, we know that our culture seems to be getting worse and worse and it breaks our hearts. It puts us on our knees. We cry out to you, God. We are desperate for a revival. We are desperate to see you more clearly and to show you more contagiously to this lost and dying world. May we do that, not with a swagger or with sniveling, not with superiority or inferiority. May our love for you be contagious. May we let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.